An Exposition of Psalm 130 by John Owen The Forgiveness of Sin Part 7 Causes a Spiritual Disquiet Afflictions or Trials First, such disquietments and objections against the peace of the soul and its acceptance with God will arise from afflictions. They have done so of old. They do so in many at this day. Afflictions, great into the mind from their nature, or by what attends them, oftentimes variously affect it, and sometimes prevail to darken it so far as to engenerate thoughts that they are all messengers of wrath, all tokens of displeasure, and so consequently evidences that we are not pardoned or accepted with God. Now this is a time of great afflictions to many, and though some of them, such as have innumerable aggravating circumstances accompanying of them, some have come with a dreadful surprise and things not looked for, such as falls not out in the providence of God in many generations, such is the condition of them who are reduced to the utmost extremity by the late consuming fire of London, some have had their whole families, all their posterity taken from them. In a few days they have been suddenly bereaved as in the plague. Some in their own persons or in their relations have had sore, long, and grievous trials from oppressions and persecutions. And these things have various effects on the minds of men. Some we find crying with that wicked king, This evil is of the Lord, why should we wait any longer for him? and give up themselves to seek relief from their own lusts. Some bear up under their troubles with a natural stoutness of spirit. Some have received a sanctified use and improvement of their trials with joy in the Lord. But many we find to go heavily under their burdens, having their minds darkened with misapprehensions of the love of God and of their own personal interest in His grace. It is not, therefore, unseasonable to speak a little to this head of trouble in our entrance. Outward troubles are oftentimes occasions, if not the causes, of great inward distresses. You know how the saints of old expressed their sense of them and conflicts with them. The complaints of David are familiar to all who attend to any communion with God in these things. So are those of Job, Heman, Jonah, Jeremiah and others, neither do they complain only of their troubles, but of the sense which they had of God's displeasure in and under them, and of his hiding of his face from them, while they were so exercised. It is not otherwise at present, as is known to such as converse with many who are either surprised with unexpected troubles, or worn out with trials and disappointments of an unexpected end. They consider themselves both absolutely and with respect to others, and upon both accounts are filled with dark thoughts and despondencies. One says, I am rolled from one trial to another. The clouds with me return still after the rain. All the billows and water spouts of God go over me, and my person it may be pressed with sickness, pains, troubles in my relations with their sins, miscarriages, or death, in my outward state and want, losses, disreputation, I am even as a withered branch. Surely, if God had any special regard to my soul, it wouldn't be like this with me. Some timely end would have been put to these trials, 
On the other hand, they take a view of some other professors. They see that their tables are spread day by day, that the candle of the Lord shines continually on their tabernacle, and that all things they have, their heart's desire, set in aside the common tendencies of human nature, and nothing befalls them, grievous in this world. So it is with them. And surely, had I an interest in God's grace, in pardon, the God of Israel would not thus pursue a flea in the mountains, nor set himself in battle army against a leaf driven to and fro with the wind. He would spare me a little, and let me alone for a moment. But if things are with me, I fear my way is hidden from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. These kinds of thoughts perplex the minds of men. It keeps them off from partaking of that strong consolation which God is abundantly willing they should receive. By a comfortable persuasion of a blessed interest in that forgiveness that is with him. And this was the very case of David. Or at least these outward troubles were a special part of those depths out of which he cried for relief. By a sense of pardon, grace and redemption with God. In answer to these complaints first, that there are so many excellent things spoken concerning afflictions, their necessity, their usefulness, and the like. Such blessed ends are assigned to them, and in many have been compassed and fulfilled by them, that a man unacquainted with the exercise in which they are attended would think it impossible that anyone should be shaken in mind as to the love and favor of God on their account. But, as the Apostle tells us, that no afflictions are joyous at present, but grievous. So he who made, in the close of his trials, that solemn profession that it was good for him that he had been afflicted, yet we know, as has been declared, how he was distressed under them. There are therefore a number of things which accompany great afflictions that seem to exempt them from the common rule and the promise of love and grace. 1. Remembering our past sins in our trials. The remembrance of past and buried miscarriages and sins lies in the bosom of many afflictions. It was so with Job. You make me, he says, possess the iniquities of my youth. See his plea to that purpose in Job 13, verses 23 to 27. In the midst of his troubles and distresses, God revived upon his spirit a sense of former sins, even the sins of his youth, and made him to possess them. He filled his soul and mind with thoughts of them and anxiety about them. This made him fear lest God was his enemy, and would continue to deal with him in all severity. So was it with Joseph's brethren in their distresses. They said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. Genesis 42, verse 21 and 22. Behold, his blood is required. Their distress revives a deep, perplexing sense of the guilt of sin many years past before, and that under all of its aggravating circumstances, which spoiled them of all their reliefs and comforts, filling them with confusion and trouble, though absolutely innocent as to what was come on them, and alike appeared in the widow of Zarephath, with whom Elijah sojourned during the famine, 
Upon the death of her son, which it seems was somewhat extraordinary, she cried out to the prophet, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Are you come to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? 1 Kings 17 verse 18 It seems some great sin she had formerly contracted the guilt of, and now upon her sore affliction and the death of her only child, the remembrance of it was recalled and revived upon her soul. Thus deep calls to deep at the noise of God's waterspouts, and then all of his waves and billows go over a person. Psalm 42 verse 7 The deep of afflictions calls up the deep of the guilt of sin, and both in conjunction become its billows and waves passing over the soul. We see only the outside of men's afflictions. They usually complain only of what appears, and an easy thing it is supposed to be to apply relief and comfort to those that are distressed. The rule in this manner is so clear, so often repeated and inculcated, the promises annexed to this condition so many and precious that everyone has in readiness what to apply to them who are so exercised in these trials. But oftentimes we know nothing of the gall and wormwood that is in men's affliction. They keep that to themselves, and their souls feed upon them in secret. Lamentation 3 verse 19 God has stirred up the remembrance of some great sin or sins, and they look upon their afflictions as that in which he has come, or beginning to enter into judgment with them. And is it any wonder if they be in darkness and filled with disconsolation? Next, the trials, sharp edges. There is in many afflictions something that seems new and peculiar, in which a soul is surprised and cannot readily reduce its condition to what is taught about afflictions in general. This perplexes and entangles the mind. It is not affliction. It is trouble with it, but some one thing or other in it that appears with a special dread to the soul so that he questions whether ever it were so with any other Christian or not, and is by this deprived of the support which from former examples it might receive. And indeed, when God intends that which shall be a deep affliction, he will put an edge on it, in matter or manner or circumstances, that shall make the soul feel its sharpness. He will not take up with our bounds and measures, with which we think we could be contented but he will put the impress of its own greatness and terror upon it, that he may be acknowledged and submitted to in them. Such was the state with Naomi, when from a full and plentiful condition she went into a strange country with a husband and two sons, where they all died, leaving her destitute and poor. Hence in her account of God's dealings with her, she says, Call me not Naomi, that is pleasant. Call me Marah that is, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why then do you call me Naomi, seeing the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Ruth 1, 20 and 21. So was it with Job, with the widow of Zarephath, and with her at Nain, who is burying her only child, and still in many afflictions God is pleased to put in an entangling specialty which perplexes the soul. 
and darkens it in all of its reasonings about the love of God towards it, and its interest in parting in grace. Next, a person's natural disposition or temperament. In some affections are very strong and importunate is fixed on lawful things in which their nature is made sensible and tender, and apt to receive very deep impressions from urgent afflictions. Now, although this in itself be a good natural frame, and helps to preserve the soul from that stout-heartedness which God abhors, yet if you are not careful to watch over it, it is apt to perplex the soul with many entangling temptations. The Apostle intimates a double evil that we are liable to under trials and afflictions. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Men may either, through a natural stoutness, despise and contemn their sufferings, and be obstinate under them, or faint and despond, and so come short of the end which God aims at for them to be attained in a way of duty. Now, though the frame spoken of be not liable to the first extreme, yet it is greatly to the latter, which, if you do not watch against it, is no less pernicious than the former. Affections in such persons being greatly moved, they cloud and darken the mind, and fill it with strange apprehensions concerning God and themselves. Everything is presented to them through a mirror composed of fear, dread, terror, sorrow, and all sorts of disconsolations. This makes them faint and despond. This makes them faint and despond. To very sad apprehensions of themselves in their present condition. Next, unmortified corruptions. Afflictions find some entangled with very strong corruptions. Is the love of the world, or the pleasure of it, of name or reputation, of great contrivances for posterity and the like, or it may be of things carnal or sensual. Now when these unexpectedly meet together great afflictions and strong corruptions, it is not conceivable what a combustion they will make in the soul. It's a strong medicine or potion, meets up with a stronger tough distemper in the body, there's a violent contention in nature between them and about them, so that oftentimes the very life of the patient is endangered. So it is where a great trial or smart stroke of the hand of God falls upon a person in the midst of his pursuit of the effects of some corruptions. The soul is amazed even to distraction, and can scarce have any thought but that God has come to cut the person off in the midst of his sin. Every unmortified corruption feels a very fear and expectation of affliction with horror, and there is good reason that it should do so. For although God should be merciful to men's iniquities, yet if he should come to take vengeance of their inventions, their condition would be dark and sorrowful. Next, Satan's Opportunities Satan is never lacking in such occasions to attempt a compassing of his ends upon persons that are exercised under the hand of God. In the time of suffering it was that he fell upon the head of the church, turning it into the very hour of the power of darkness, and he will not omit any appearing opportunities of advantage against his members, and this is that which he principally in such seasons attacks them with. 
namely that God does not regard them, that they are fallen under his judgment and severity, as those who have no share in mercy, pardon, or forgiveness. How to avoid spiritual trouble under affliction? From these and the like reasons I say it is that, whereas afflictions in general are so testified to, to be such pledges and tokens of God's love and care, to be designed to blessed ends as conformity to Christ and a participation of the holiness of God. Yet by reason of these circumstances they often prove means of casting the soul into depths and of hindering it from a refreshing interest in the forgiveness that is with God. That this may prove no real or abiding ground of inward spiritual trouble to the soul, the following rules and directions may be observed. The most affliction the most grace, not only afflictions in general, but great manifold afflictions, and those attended with all sorts of aggravating circumstances, are always consistent with the pardon of sin, after signal tokens and pledges of it, and the love of God therein. What is man? That you should magnify him, and that you should set your heart upon him, and that you should visit him every morning and try him every moment, Job 7, 17, and 18. What were the considerations that cast Job into this admiration of the care and love of God? It's expressed in verses 12 to 16. There are no words of a more dismal import in the whole book than is here expressed. Yet when he recollected himself from his overwhelming distress, he acknowledges that all his proceeded from the love and care of God. Yea, his fixing his heart upon a man to magnify him, to set him up and do him good. For to this end he chastens a man every morning and tries him every moment. And that with such afflictions as are for the present so far from being joyous, is that they give no rest, but even weary the soul of life, as he expresses their effects on himself. And so it is observed of this, Job, that when none in the earth was like to him in trouble, God gave him three testimonies from heaven that there was none in the earth like to him in grace. And although it may not be laid down as a general rule, yet for the most part in the providence of God, from the foundation of the world, those who have had most of afflictions have had most of grace, and the most eminent testimonies of acceptance with God. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the head of the church, had all afflictions gathered into a head in him. And yet the Father always loved him and was always well pleased with him when God solemnly renewed his covenant with Abraham. And he had prepared the sacrifice in which it was to be ratified and confirmed. God made a smoking furnace to pass between the pieces of the sacrifice, Genesis 15, verse 17. It was to let him know that there was a furnace of affliction attending the covenant of grace and peace. And so he tells Zion that he chose her in the furnace of affliction, Isaiah 48 verse 10, that is an Egyptian affliction, burning, flaming afflictions, fiery trials, as Peter calls them, 1 Peter 4 verse 12. There can then no argument be drawn from affliction, from any kind of it, from any aggravating circumstances in which it may be attended, that should any way discourage us all in the comforting, supporting persuasion of an interest in the love of God and forgiveness by it.
Long afflictions are also no cause for spiritual disconsolation. No length or continuance of afflictions ought to be any impeachment of our spiritual consolation. Take for the confirmation of this a great example of the Son of God. How long did his afflictions continue? What end or issue was put to them? No longer did they abide then until he cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost to the moment of his death. From the manger to his cross, his afflictions still increased and he ended his days in the midst of them. Now he was the head of the church and the great representative of it to a conformity with whom we are predestined. And if God will have it so with us, even in this particular, so as that we shall have no rest, no peace from our trials, until we lie down in the grave, that whatever condition we pass through, they shall be shut out of none, but only from immortality and glory? What have we herein to complain of? Next, deal with your past sins in isolation where the remembrance and perplexing sense of past sins is revived by your present afflictions, separate them in your minds and deal distinctly about them. So long as you carry on a consideration of them together, you'll be rolled from one to another and never obtain rest to your souls. They will mutually aggravate each other. The sharpness of affliction will add to the bitterness of the sense of sin and the sense of sin will give an edge to affliction, and cause it to pierce deeply into the soul, as we showed in the former instances. Deal, therefore, distinctly about them, and in their proper order. So does the psalmist here. He had it present both upon him and together. They brought him into these depths, concerning which he so cries out for deliverance from them. Psalm 32 Verses 3 to 5. And what course does he take? He applies himself in the first place to his sin and the guilt of it, and that distinctly and separately. And when he has got a discharge of sin, which he waited so earnestly for, his faith quickly arose above his outward trials. As appears in this blessed close of all, he shall redeem Israel out of all of its trouble the whole Israel of God, and myself amongst them. This do then, single out the sin or sins that are revived in the sense of their guilt upon the conscience. Use all diligence to come to an issue about them in the blood of Christ. This God by your affliction calls you too. This is a disease in which your trouble is but the symptom this, therefore, and the cure you seek after is first and principally to be attended to. When that is once removed, the other, as to any prejudice to your soul, will depart of itself. The root being once dug up, you shall not long feed on the bitter fruit that is brought forth, or if you do, the wormwood shall be taken out of it, and it shall be very pleasant to you, as well as wholesome. How this is to be done by an application to God for forgiveness has been at large declared. But if men will not deal with their confused thoughts about their sins and their troubles, their wound will be incurable and their sorrow endless. 
afflictions or trials bring temptations. Remember that a time of affliction is a time of temptation. Satan, as we have shown, will not be lacking to any appearing opportunity or advantage of setting upon the soul. When Pharaoh heard that the people were entangled in the wilderness, he pursued them. And when Satan sees a soul entangled with his distresses and troubles, he thinks it is his time and hour to assault it. He seeks to winnow and comes when the corn is under the flail. Reckon, therefore, that when trouble comes, the prince of the world comes also, that you may be provided for him. Now is the time to take the shield of faith, that we may be able to quench his fiery darts. If they are neglected, they will inflame the soul. Watch, therefore, and pray that ye enter not into temptation, that Satan does not represent God falsely to you. He that durst represent Job falsely to the all-seeing God will with much boldness represent God falsely to us, who see and know so little. Do not be then ignorant of his devices, but every way set yourselves against this interposing between God and your souls in a manner which he has nothing to do with. Next, distinguish natural depression from spiritual distress. Learn to distinguish the effect of natural distempers from spiritual distresses. Some have sad, dark, and tenacious thoughts fixed on their mind from their natural distempers. These will not be cured by reasonings nor utterly quelled by faith. Our design must be to abate their efficacy in consequence by considering their occasions. And if men cannot do this in themselves, it is highly incumbent on those who make application of relief to them to be careful to discern what is from such principles in which they are not to expect a speedy cure. The next rule is be vigilant when times are good. Take heed in times of peace and ease that you lay not up by your negligence or careless walking sad provision for a day of darkness, a time of afflictions. It is sin that embitters troubles. The sins of peace are revived in times of distress. Fear of future affliction or of impending troubles should make us careful not to bring that into them, which will make them bitter and sorrowful. Labor to benefit from your afflictions. Labor to grow better under all your afflictions. Lest your afflictions grow worse, lest God mingle them with more darkness, bitterness, and terror. As Joab said to David, if he did not cease his scandalous lamentation on the death of Absalom, all the people would leave him, and he should then find himself in a far worse condition than that which he bemoaned or anything that befell him from his youth. The same may be said to persons under their afflictions, if they are not managed and improved in a due manner. That which is worse may, nay, in all probability, will befall them. Wherever God takes this way, and engages in afflicting us, he does commonly pursue his work until he is prevailed, and his design towards the afflicted party is accomplished. He will not cease to thresh and break the bread corn until it be fit for his use. Lay down then the weapons of your warfare against him. 
Give up yourselves to his will. Let go of everything about which he contends with you. Follow after that which he calls you to, and you will find light arising to you in the midst of darkness. Does he have a cup of affliction in one hand? Lift up your eyes and you will see a cup of consolation in another hand. And if all stars withdraw their light while you are in the way of God, assure yourselves that the sun is ready to rise. Next, remember that chastisement is compatible with assurance. According to the tenor of the covenant of grace, a man may be sensible of the respective affliction to sin, yea, to this or that sin in particular, and yet have a comfortable persuasion of the forgiveness of sin. So it was in general in God's dealing with his people. He forgave them, but he took vengeance on their inventions. Psalm 89 verse 8 Whatever they suffered under the vengeance that fell upon their inventions, and that is as hard a word as is applied anywhere to God's dealing with his people. Yet, at the same time, he assured them of the pardon of their sin. So, you know, was the case of David, his greatest trial and affliction, and that which befell him on the account of a particular sin, and in which God took vengeance on his invention, was ushered in with the word of grace, that God had done away or pardoned his sin, and that he should not die. This is expressed in the tenor of the covenant with the seat of Christ, Psalm 89, verses 31 to 34.